we are continuing into 1 Samuel 14. Listen, I had a, uh, we had a baby two weeks ago, so I just forget everything, right? I'm going to use that excuse for a while as I forget things. Uh, it's like when I was, whenever I was a server, I was a new server for like the first two years that I was at the restaurant. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm new. I don't remember that. Let me go ask the chef. So anyway, we had a baby. Um, we don't sleep much. I forgot what I was supposed to say. Moving on, 1 Samuel 14. So we are, one of the things that marks us here is we are expository preachers. So what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So we've been studying through 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 14 here this morning. Um, so a quick recap where we are. The, the kingship has now been installed in the nation of Israel, and the first king has been chosen as Saul. And we've seen kind of ups and downs of Saul. Sometimes he's been this mighty warrior of God who's led Israel against their enemies. Uh, And then at other times, we've seen him turn his back on God, as we saw last week in particular. Uh, And last week, the chapter 13 and chapter 14 kind of go together as one big story. And the author is wanting to put up these two examples, Saul and then this other person we had introduced uh, introduced last week, his son Jonathan. And the author is setting up these two characters as juxtapositions to one another. And he's showing the contrast between the two. Last week we saw Jonathan go out and fight the Philistines and Saul took the credit. And then he tried to take matters into his own hands. And we'll see it ramp up even more this week. And we're going to do something a little bit different this week as we read through the text. It's a longer text, uh, 52 verses. Um, I saw everyone just kind of collectively go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding. 52 verses, we can do it. It's the inspired word of God, and it's going to be good for uh, godliness and all things to our lives. So we're going to do it out loud. Um, But it is, uh, rather than going through the entire text from a teaching perspective, I want to read through the whole thing so we get a sense of the story and the continuity of it. But I want to hone in on one thing that Jonathan says, um, because I think it's particularly helpful um, and just providential for where we are in the life of our church. So we're going to read through it, but I want to really zero in on one of the things that Jonathan says. So what I'll do, a quick kind of recap of the story before we read it, because otherwise we may just all be lost as we're reading it out loud. You're going to see a couple things happening. So at the very beginning, Jonathan, kind of the same thing as last week, he goes out on his own to fight the Philistines. You'll see he doesn't tell his dad. He doesn't tell Saul about it. He takes his armor bearer with him, and he goes up in this battle with this garrison of the Philistines, and he says, okay, it may be that God's going to work for us. We'll see. If, if the Philistines say this, then we'll know that God's handing them over to our hands, and we'll go fight them, and we're going to win, even though there's just two of us. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Jonathan and his armor bearer go down. They fight this Philistine uh, garrison that they shouldn't win, and sure enough, the Lord works. And as this is happening, Saul hears what's happening back at the camp, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he figures out Jonathan's not there. And so he then goes and sends the rest of the army down, and they, sure enough, defeat the Philistines. And this all happened because of Jonathan's faith and his initiative. So again, you have to ask the question, why didn't Saul do this on his own? But his son was stepping up in the lack of his father's leadership. Then in the second half of the book, you then get this weird story about Saul making this rash vow. So Saul, the king then, uh, is kind of upset and has this uh, axe to grind against the Philistines. So he makes a vow that no one in the uh, Israelite army can eat until the Philistines are defeated. So everyone's starting to get hungry. People are getting tired. And he says, if anybody eats, then they will die. Well, his son, Jonathan, didn't hear this. He's out in the forest, sees some honey, eats some honey, because who doesn't love honey? It doesn't ever expire or go bad. The only food that doesn't do that. Fun trivia question for you. Um, And so he eats the honey, 
And then, and then it begins to come out that he ate that. Saul's like, oh, well, I made this vow. Whoever ate is supposed to die. You ate, Jonathan. Oh, you've got to die. And the people of Israel step up and they say, no, you, you can't kill him. He's the one that brought salvation to us today. And then it ends with this weird story kind of recounting all of Saul's uh, military victory. So that's uh, the, the story for today. And so I want to give you kind of a heads up before we read, read it. So now chapter 14, verses 1 through 52. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. Um, we'll be reading through this here today. So starting in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahituv, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sineh. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and when we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Hey, come up to us, and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God at that time was with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his own fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-haven. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, 
So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. And no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And it was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all the leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Now cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was the one taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will surely die. And Saul said, God, do to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. But then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And when Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, instructs the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, 
and the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter Ahimaaz. And the, daughter of the, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, the son of Abiel. There, were, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So this is the story of chapter 14. And you see kind of this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. But the thing I want us to hone in on in the midst of this whole story is towards the beginning. Whenever Jonathan is there with his armor bearer getting ready to go and attack the Philistines, I want us to look at the sentence that he turns to his armor bearer and says before they go down. It's in verse 6. Look back at verse 6. He said, it may be the second half. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, the verse I have behind me, it's a different translation. It's the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I I like a couple things, the way that they capture this. But notice the way that they phrase it here. And we'll have this up behind us throughout today. But Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will help us. For nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And this is the sentence that Jonathan utters before he then rushes down against these impossible odds to attack the Philistines. And there's a couple things I want us to see here in uh, Jonathan's faith before he goes and attempts an impossible situation. I want us to see the humility of his faith, and I want us to see the confidence of his faith. The humility of his faith and the confidence of his faith. And we see it in two words, the humility of his faith and that word perhaps. It may be. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. And the confidence of his faith, and as he moves on, he says there is nothing Nothing can keep the Lord from saving. Perhaps nothing. Humility and confidence. So first, the humility of his faith. Notice that Jonathan doesn't say. Jonathan doesn't get the armor bearer together and go, hey, man, come here. Listen, if we believe enough, we'll go down, and these Philistines don't stand a chance. Our faith and our confidence will twist God's arm to work for us to be able to make him do whatever it is we want to do. And so as long as we believe enough, then it will force God to work on our behalf. He doesn't say that. Jonathan comes humbly and goes, perhaps the Lord will work. It may be that the Lord will work for us. And I point that out because there is a strain of uh, what they call Christianity. It is not Christianity. But there's a strain of teaching that's becoming more and more popular in America, and especially around the world, that centers around this idea that our faith makes God work for us. It's known as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Uh, and, And in it, pretty much, it says if you have faith, God will make you healthy, he'll make you wealthy, and he will make you happy. Always. And depending if he doesn't, if you get sick or if anything happens to you, the reason why is because you don't have enough faith. And friends, listen to me. I've said it before. I just want to make sure it's clear because it's getting more and more traction. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. And you notice Jonathan here held up an example of faith. He comes and he goes, perhaps the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. He doesn't go and say, my confidence is going to force God to give me what it is that I want. He comes humbly Because the reality is that God does not always give us a healthy, prosperous, and uh, a seemingly happy life. God has so much more for you than that. 
Friends, some of the saddest people are the wealthiest people. Some of those miserable people are the most successful people. We see this time and time again. And the lie that's coming out from these teachers that are on TV and around that are selling New York Times bestsellers is that if you have enough faith, then God can give you these things and you will be happy. What the Bible tells us, though, is that regardless of our circumstances, God gives us himself, and that is enough. And that there will be a day that's coming whenever those, that brokenness that we feel will be removed and all sad things will come untrue. And friends, the reality is that your best life is not now. Your best life is to come. And that is what we are moving towards. And in the midst as we walk in this life, we walk forward with that humility going, perhaps the Lord will work in this situation. But I do not control him. He is the one that controls everything. And I walk forward in that humility. And we see Jonathan walk forward in that. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord will help us. It may be. But then we see the confidence of his faith. The confidence of his faith then shifts and he goes, because there is nothing that can keep the Lord from saving. Nothing. Whether it be by many or by few. And so notice where his confidence lies. Jonathan's confidence does not lie in his military prowess. His confidence does not lie in his royal lineage. His confidence does not lie in the strength of his armor bearer or the plan of his attack. His confidence lies alone in the power and the might of his God. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving. And notice then he tacks on the end. It doesn't matter if he has a lot or a little. It doesn't matter because it is the Lord. And there is nothing that can keep him from working and helping and saving and accomplishing his will if he sets his mind to it. And perhaps this situation falls into that category. But we have confidence knowing, hey, me, you, armor bearer, I know that this situation looks impossible, but hear me say, if God is in this, it doesn't matter how many people we have. We will be just fine. And we see then he lays out this, this kind of plan to be able to see if God is in the midst of it. He says, if, if they call for us to come up to them, then we'll know that God is here with us and working for us. And I love the Philistines then, what their response is, as they see Jonathan and his armor bearer come out uh, of the crags, these two crags, kind of these two uh, mountainous passes. They come out and they see the Philistines, and the Philistines in verse 11 say, look, here are Hebrews coming out of the holes that they were hidden themselves. You can hear, you hear them taunting. Like, oh, here, oh, they finally decided to come out of the tombs and the caves and the places where they were hiding and actually show themselves. And then in verse 12, this is uh, just, you, you can't make this stuff up. This is, again, some of the reasons why I believe the Bible is true is some of the stuff that's in here. Um, it's like, you would, if you're making up the story, you wouldn't make things up like this. Anyway, verse 12, the Philistines look and, and they call up to Jonathan and his armor bearer and they say, Hey, come up to us, and we'll show you a, th a thing. We'll show you the, uh, the what's the, uh, just a thing. We'll show you a thing down here that we really want to show you. We'll tell you when you get down here, but we'll show it to you. And so it's this fleece that Jonathan lays out, and he sees, okay, they've called to us. God's in the midst of us. Let's go. God is in this moment. Let's move forward. I know that it's an impossible circumstance. I know that on our own, we can't do this, but armor bearer, listen, God is in the middle of it, and so we can go forward with confidence knowing that it doesn't matter how great or how small we may be, we can walk forward knowing that God will be the one working. 
Jonathan attempted something so great for God that it would be doomed to failure unless God was in it. Friends, when was the last time in your life you attempted something so great that it would be doomed to failure if God was not in it? When was the last time you attempted something that apart from God's divine intervention, there would be no way it could come about? Or do we do a really good job of making sure that our lives stay within the realm of possibility of things that we can control? Do you do that? Do you attempt things so great that they're doomed to failure unless God is in it? I think part of the problem is that we as adults, particularly even as Westerners, we, we like to make sure that we have control of our lives. Our logic and our reason kind of begins to kick in, and we want to make sure that the things that we do are things that we know that we can handle. Right, one of my favorite things in the last couple of weeks as we've introduced a son into our family has been watching both my son as he's already starting to grow, but it's also been watching my two-year-old daughter as she started to interact with him. And there's this affection and desire the other day that he was sitting in his uh, crib and all of a sudden I look over and about 18 baby dolls are on top of him as she's brought each and every one of them, wanted to make sure she showed him like, hey, you're a baby, you must like baby dolls and just stacked them on top of them. And she loves her baby brother. And it's been not only great watching the interaction between them two, it's been incredible the way that my perspective of her has changed in the last two weeks. And I heard parents tell me this, uh, but I didn't quite expect how gigantic my two-year-old would look overnight all of a sudden. We bring home this little baby, and all of a sudden this little girl the last two years is like a, a giant changing her diaper. I'm like, this is an adult diaper. You should be changing yourself by now. This thing's huge. Are you kidding me? Pick her up. It's like picking Leah up. I'm like, this is, this, how did you get so big overnight? This is ridiculous. And it's been awesome watching the way that she's interacted and the changes that's happened. Also in the last two weeks, developmentally, she's just started becoming a big sister. She started talking more. She started uh, beginning to step into different kinds of uh, development. And one of my favorite things has been watching her play with these blocks that she has. And those blocks, that, they're like a cube, but on the bottom they're hollow. So you can stack them up one on top of the other. And it comes kind of like you can collapse down really small. But if you take them all out, kind of like the Russian dolls, you can take them all out and stack them up on top of each other. And you can stack them up probably about three or four feet high for one purpose to be able to then knock them down. And she loves it. She'll stack them up. She'll knock them down. Sometimes she'll have them on its side so that the, the opening is over on the side. And for whatever reason, she'll reach in and act like she's getting some food and just start eating it. I don't know where she got that from, but apparently that's like McDonald's to her. And it's been incredible watching her interact with these. And it's just taken off in the last few weeks. And one of the other favorite things that she does is she'll take the blocks, she'll put her feet in them, and then she'll act like she's skating around the house. She loves to put her feet in. I'm like, listen, Millie, that's a bad idea for skating. I, as a former rollerblader, I don't know if any of you knew this, I was quite the rollerblader back in my day. Seventh grade, skate town competition, no one could hang with me in those. It didn't matter. By the end of the birthday parties, I was drenched in sweat, but I was winning that race. I'm going around the corner like Apollo Anton Ono with my hand on the ground. I'm a 12-year-old taking it way too seriously. You may laugh like, oh, that's cute. You did rollerblades as you were younger. No, I rollerbladed in college. I started a thing. It became a trend. It's a, great, it's a great way to transport yourself around campus. I would just roll right into class, right into my seat, 
and, uh, and started what was a revolution at Mississippi State campus as people began to see, man, that's really cool that he rollerblades everywhere. And there was like three of us, but we had a great time. <laughs> and so I sit here and I watch my daughter. She's putting her feet in these blocks and trying to move around. I'm like, that's a terrible idea, but go ahead. Go ahead, have a great time. But then I noticed she would take the smallest blocks. I mean, it's like a half an inch or small. And she holds it up and she starts to put her foot in there. And so her spatial development hasn't quite figured out, oh, those things don't actually fit in there. It's impossible. Your foot ain't getting in there. And so what do I say as a father? I'm like, Millie, idiot, stop it. What are you doing? That's not going to fit. I don't do that most of the time. No, I sit there and I watch her figure it out. I see her put like her little toe in there and go, oh, okay, yeah, this isn't going to fit. Let me find another block. But it doesn't stop her. Right? There's something about a child where it's almost like nothing seems impossible. Like anything can be tried and attempted. And they grab it. And, and as an adult, I sit there. And I'm like, what are you doing? Grab the boxes that are obviously big enough to put your feet in. But as a child, she doesn't see that. She doesn't see that barrier. She doesn't see that hurdle. Everything in front of her is a possibility. And friends, my concern for us as we've grown up, I worry that our mentality as adults, that we've been able to look and now say, this is possible, this is not, that that kind of dichotomy that we now view the world has overflowed into the way that we view our lives spiritually. And we look and we examine things and we go, oh yeah, this is possible, this is not. This box is too small. We can't fit our foot in there. Let's make sure to only put our feet in boxes that can fit. Let's do the things that we can attempt on our own. And our logic and our reason begins to shift over. And we live very safe, very comfortable lives that are within the realm of our control, both in our families, in our own lives, and in our churches. And friends, we lack the faith that Jonathan has here in this passage. We lack the faith of a child that sees no impossibility, that looks at every situation and goes, if God is in the midst of this, it doesn't matter how small the box is because our God cannot be contained in a box. And what has to first change in order, us, in order for us to see God move in incredible ways is we have to change not what we're doing. We first have to change our expectation. We have to change what we expect God to do because at the heart of all of that is we don't expect God to be able to move in impossible ways. We expect us to be able to go and do what it is we can do on our own. So first, our expectations have to change. And expectations are huge, right? In premarital counseling, this is some of the best advice I was given, and it's always some of the best advice I give. Expectations, it's so important. Communicate to one another. Get on the front end of things and go, hey, here's what I expect this to look like. And then you can go, oh, here's what I expect it to look like. And you go, oh, those are two very different things. Let's talk about that and have the same expectations moving forward. Rather than all of a sudden you get to your first Valentine's Day and you don't buy your wife a present. Hypothetically. <laughs> An expectation is different from what your experience is. And expectations are wildly important. And friends, as long as we don't expect God to do the impossible, then he often won't. And we will go and try to control our lives and we'll try to control this church moving forward to make sure that it fits into a nice, neat little box and we only attempt things that we can accomplish on our own. When was the last time that you attempted something so great that it was doomed to failure unless God was in it? The, 
man, an uh, old Baptist uh, minister named William Carey. He was alive from 1761 to 1834. He's known as the father of modern missions. He shifted so much of how we view world evangelization and world missions today. And so much of what we have seen and shaped since then came from him. At the very beginning, before he decided, he moved to India for uh, decades to be able to just do gospel work there. And people told him, this was the mentality in his day, as they said, listen, William, it doesn't matter if, if we go or we don't go, God will save the heathen if he wants to. We don't have to go. And William said, no, listen, do you see the Great Commission where Jesus said, go and make disciples? That commission falls to us. We have to go. I have to go. And so William was there with three or four of his good friends. One of them was Andrew Fuller, another Baptist minister. And he sat there and he was getting ready to move to India. Unknown. No fruit. There's no church there. And he looks at uh, his friend Andrew and he tells him, he said, I will go down if you hold the rope. And I, I love that picture, first of all, of friendship and what missions looks like as a church then holds the rope as a missionary then extends over into other parts of the world. And they say, hey, we've got you. We'll hold the rope and you go. And so he left. He picked up his life and he moved to India. And right before he went, he gave a sermon that, that wasn't um, very effective then, but it became the sounding cry really of modern missions. And he kept saying this one line over and over and over again. And in his sermon, he stood before the people and he said, friends, what we have to do is we have to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things from God, for God. Expect and attempt. See, he knew that the beginning of the problem was expectation. The beginning of the problem was that didn't, people didn't expect God to go and move and work through his people, even in hard lands. Even if you move to India, even if you move to the Horn of Africa, even if you move to a country where you haven't seen anyone come to know Jesus in centuries, and it is, uh, it is staunchly opposed to Christianity. Friends, we as Christians should have a big enough view of God that says that God can still work in the midst of that because he is a God who stands over it all. And so we can expect great things from God. And whenever our expectations lie up there, then we begin to attempt great things for him because we know that there is nothing that can keep him from saving whether by many or by few and we walk forward in that confidence we walk forward in that boldness not in our strategy not in how persuasive we might be not in how well we can package this thing called christianity but we rest solely in the power and the might and the strength of our god as we expect great things from him we then attempt great things for him and many of us don't attempt great things because we don't expect great things we live normal safe lives that can be explained away and we don't attempt things that would be doomed to failure if God was not in it. And so we are, in the life of our church, in the middle of this right now. As we get ready in two weeks to transition, to be on our own, to be the Grove Church here in this area. Right? It takes me back, as I was preparing for this sermon, it just takes me back to a few months ago whenever we were praying through whether or not to walk through this door. As Grace came to us and they said, hey, we want to open the door for you. If you'd like to walk through it, we want to launch you guys, plant you guys, celebrate that, get you on your feet, and then be able to see a gospel-preaching church planted out in South Lake County. 
And so we heard that, and we left for a week, and we prayed. Leah and I talked. We got counsel. We talked to some of the leaders here. And in that week, there was a lot of uncertainty. Right? Church planning is anything but certain. It's not like, okay, here's everything that's going to happen. Here's your budget that's set for the next 10 years. Here's all the people that will absolutely come, and you'll be fine. Friends, there is unknown and uncertainty in church planting. And as we sat there in that week, we sat there and we wrestled and we prayed and we talked and we went, okay, there's unknown here. We could go, we can continue with grace, or we could leave and go to another church, and uh, it, uh, that would be safer. But we could not move past what it felt like the Lord was calling us to what he was directing us to. And as we're sitting here talking about it, Leah and I just both were like, this, this doesn't make sense. Why are we even entertaining this? And the thing that we couldn't move past that both of us vocalized is that neither of us were ready to move beyond what it was God was doing here and the ministry that we saw happening here. And we said, yes, there is unknown. There is uncertainty. We're going to be putting our family on the line as we got another one on the way. But we believe what God is doing here, and we just want to be a part of it. And as we sat there, then I began to see the direction that the sermon series was going. And I saw that 1 Samuel 14 landed on a day two weeks before we transitioned. Friends, we picked this sermon series before there was any talk of being able to transition or plant off campuses. And God is sovereign, and the Holy Spirit moves even in planning. The Holy Spirit isn't just spontaneous and only works when you don't plan. He does sometimes, but he also works through planning. You cannot not see God providentially bringing us to this point two weeks before we get ready to launch, and you hear Jonathan say that there is nothing that can keep the Lord by save, from saving, whether by many or by few. Because, friends, that is a sentence. It is words that we need to hear right now and words that we need to believe as we move forward. To not just try and go and uh, rest on our own strength as we change. Because my concern is that on September 9th, as it gets closer and closer, that we might just become satisfied with new signs, new flags, a new website and logo. And maybe people start walking in. And maybe the church grows some over the next few months or years. And we are satisfied with that. Because that terrifies me. It terrifies me because I want greater things for us than that. I want us to expect greater things from God than that. I want us to expect great things from him, and I want us to attempt great things for him. I want us to attempt things that would be doomed to failure unless God was in it. And for our perspective to shift as we get ready to launch this new church. As we don't just walk kind of into a safe and comfortable environment to make sure our feet only go into boxes that they'll fit into. But for us to see that we aren't just creating an organization for people that might come and make new friends, but we are covenanting together as a people to be a part of a divine institution that's been chartered by our creator to carry his gospel to a broken world. I want us to expect great things and to attempt great things. To see that we'll not just be content with a few Christians coming from other churches because it makes us feel more full in here and it'll help us pay the bills, but that we feel the burden, that we have the expectation that people who don't know and love Jesus would come to know and love him through the ministry of this church and the ministry of your lives because we want to expect great things and we want to attempt great things, to not just be concerned with expanding our church, with expanding his kingdom. 
to see that we don't just partner with missionaries like the Entwistles or the Dilworths because we like to say that our church is involved with missions and we can put a new flag out in the lobby, but that we feel the burden to hold that rope for them as they are living this sermon out across the globe and that we will pray for their ministry to stay connected in what's happening over there and believing that God can move in the midst of the hardest soil because we expect great things and so we will attempt great things. The expectations that you have for your kids won't be that they just grow up, don't go to jail, get a good job, marry a good person, and don't move too far away from us, but that we would see ourselves as stewards of our children, preparing them to be a force to be reckoned with in the kingdom of God, whether they grow up to be missionaries, bankers, or stay-at-home moms, that God would be at work raising mighty believers in the halls and rooms of this school and in the living rooms of your homes, that we would expect great things and that we would attempt great things because, friends, in two weeks, we'll begin the journey of setting up a church that will storm the gates of hell, making disciples who know, treasure, and obey Christ. But in order to do that, we have to stop trying to put our feet into boxes that they will fit into, and we have to start attempting the impossible because we serve a God who doesn't know what that word means. And you may hear that and go, but I can't do that. I can't step in and do all of that exactly. Friends, that's the very first step. That's step one. And then step two, on the heels of that, is realizing who can do it. Friends, the process of building this church doesn't fall on your shoulders. That's not our job. He uses us. But Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he says that the, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to do the work. And friends, we come and we are used by him, but we rest in the confidence knowing that our confidence and our faith does not rest on your strength, does not rest on your ability, does not rest on your persuasion. Our confidence rests on the strength and the might of the one that we are following, Jesus Christ. And he's the one that will build this church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase or that verse before, but when I grew up, I often imagined that verse as being something like the, of hell uh, opposing and coming after his church and us being able to withstand the attack of the church and that they won't be able to prevail against the church. That, that was kind of always the image that I had. But when you read the verse, gates is not an offensive weapon, it's defensive. When Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, the image that Jesus is painting, the picture that he's putting forward is that the church is going to be storming the gates of hell. They're going to be coming against, pushing back the limits of the kingdom of darkness and bringing forward the gospel of his son. And those gates that are trying to hold back the church will not be able to stand against it because Jesus Christ, the one who conquered sin and death, is now committed himself in all of his sovereignty and all of his power. The one who holds the universe together. The one who was the word that moved forward to come as the perfect image of the God, the Father. He has now said in all all of my power and all authority that I have, I will build my church. And we fall in behind that. But friends, this is the beginning of an unbelievably exciting journey. And we're almost there at the start. We've just made it through the crags and we stand looking at the impossible task that lays before us. We've gotten to right at the edge of the Philistine camp 
and we see the garrison before us and we go, we can't do this on our own. And we can have one of two responses. We can either say, man, I just don't know if it will happen. I mean, there's finances and staffing and outreach and all that needs to happen. It might just be too much. Or we can lean in, look at one another in the eye and say, perhaps the Lord will help us because there is nothing that can keep him from saving by many or by few. I know which one I want to say. What about you? Let's pray. God, we praise you for who you are. God, for being a God that there is nothing that can stand against you, nothing that can hold you back. And God, we worship you for being a God then that has taken all of your power and all of your might, and you have come and you have made us your children, and that all of that power is now for us. And you want to use us, God. Use us for your plan. You want to give us a picture of our lives that is far greater than what this world is trying to tell us beyond just living for ourselves to see that our lives are not about us, but you're calling us to be a part of something so much greater. God, would you lift our perspective? Would you lift our purpose? And would you show us just how great a plan you have for each of us? And God, would you help us to walk forward in humility and in confidence? Humility knowing that we do not control you, but that you are the one that controls everything and in confidence knowing that no matter what situation we face, that we would walk forward with a childlike faith, not even seeing that as a category anymore, and knowing that there is nothing that can keep you from working and helping us, whether by many or by few. But God, we pray that you would work. We pray that you would help us. And you pray, we pray that through this church, as messed up, as we may be, God, that we would lean on you and that you would work through us. We love you and we thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.